All right. Let's dig in uh, to the text, uh, but before I do, with such a, an amazing one as this one, I'm going to pray and ask for God's help uh, in understanding what we have before us. Father God, you are so good and so gracious to us. Uh, Lord, it escapes us that you would come to earth to die for our sins to save us and provide for us your word with which to guide us. Father, I pray this evening as we approach a passage uh, that is uh, debated on so many levels that you would be at work in our hearts, showing us what we need to hear from it this evening. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we approach uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, as you've probably heard in the reading, we are approaching a passage uh, that has left people on both sides of the fence, as long as Bible interpretation has been around. Only it's one of those fences at the corner of a property which has multiple backyards attached to it and no one can agree on which grass is greener on any side. Uh, Or in this instance, no one can agree on which person holds the exact correct interpretation. In fact, one author I read this week, he said this about 1 Corinthians 11. He said, there are almost as many interpretations of this passage as there are interpreters. Probably tells you all you need to know. In other words, everyone, it seems, holds slightly different views when it comes to understanding 1 Corinthians 11. And so what this calls for at the end of the day, kind of at its root, is a certain level of humility as we approach the Word of God, uh, particularly this passage. A dose of humility, because as long as this letter to the Corinthians has been around, it seems, even the cleverest of people the people who've studied every single Greek word and understand all the syntax, uh, the people who have PhDs in in first century Greco-Roman culture and all of that, knowing where it was set and kind of what was going on, even they can't agree fully on what's going on in the Corinthian church here in 1 Corinthians 11. And if this is true, if this is the case, then we also need to be careful not to read too much into it or to apply an interpretation that's too hard and fast when, in some instances, it's probably or definitely not warranted. So if you were paying attention as we had the Bible read to us this evening, I'm sure you would have noticed there were a few strange things in there. Uh, This is one that's led people to some pretty extreme conclusions and some fairly strong convictions about certain practices, particularly among women in the church. Uh, Certain ideas about the roles of men and women, uh, the types of things they should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, In fact, even the types of ways they should or shouldn't dress, for example, outward appearance. In fact, in the 1970s, uh, when concern for women's rights really started to heat up in the church, uh, this was one of the key passages that was used uh, in the debate. And yet the difficulty is that regardless of which side you sit on on any given issue, I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, when we know uh, with certainty that we don't actually know all that much about what's going on inside the Corinthian church here, you know, there's there's no security camera footage we can kind of look back on and go, oh, this is what he meant when he said this. You know, there's there's no uh, other extra-biblical evidence, as far as I'm aware of, that can tell us exactly what was happening, the exact issue Paul was addressing here. Uh, There's no other documented evidence. So we're lacking a huge amount of context in this regard. And that means when we come to our conclusions, there is a slight danger that we might be wrong. 
And context really matters. I mean, you, you might see someone robbing a grave, for example, and you might think, that's terrible, only to find out that they're an archaeologist who's been paid to be there to dig up and do what their job is. So when it comes to context, let me give you a couple of examples of, of what I'm talking about uh, in 1 Corinthians 11. So first in this passage, uh, Paul, he mentions men and women quite a bunch. And I've just grabbed uh, four verses here, verses 3 to 6, to give you some examples. In the original language uh, of the Bible, this could easily translate as husband and wife, believe it or not. So who is Paul addressing here? Straight off the bat, we need to ask ourselves, are these commands directed at male-female relationships in general, or is Paul targeting the more specific marriage relationship within the church. So if you're single, this doesn't exactly apply to you, at least not as strongly. And if it is husband and wife relationships, uh, which can make more sense of some of the bits that we see, why does every English translation we have translate it as man and woman, not husband and wife? So that's the first example of a a fork in the road uh, where your decision, uh, where you land on this one, will impact how you understand the text. Uh, If you continue going down uh, the same passage, if you were to scan your eyes even further, you'd see the word head appear. Uh, Not just a little bit, but quite a lot. In those three verses, you can see it on the screen. And when it comes to this issue of head or, or headship, another issue arises. That is, what does Paul actually mean by the word head? Now, often... Uh, In today's day and age, when we think about head, we might think of like the head of a a company or the head of an organisation. You know, you might think of the CEO, for example, or the head of a football team being uh, the coach, that kind of thing. Often uh, our understanding of the word head can revolve around authority. And if this is the case, well, it can make sense of some of the stuff we see. Uh, For example, the head of Christ is God. If you've been reading through John's Gospel, you'd see this quite a lot, where the Son is always saying he's under the authority of the Father. There is some truth to this. In fact, Jesus in John's Gospel, he's always submitting to the Father's authority. Uh, John 5.19, 6.38, 14.10, and so on. But this isn't the only definition of the word head, once again, in the original language. Uh, it also can refer to uh, source, like the source of something. Not the condiments you have in your fridge, not the delicious stuff you put on burgers, but the source as in the origin of something. So it's possible to understand this phrase, uh, that the head of Christ is God, as saying the source of Christ, as in his, his nature, his essence. You know, Christ gets his nature and his essence from the Father, from God. What's more is you could argue the same for other relationships in this passage. So uh, man is the source of woman, for example. If you think back to Genesis, how was Eve made? She was made from one of Adam's ribs. Adam is literally the source of Eve. Man's literally the source of woman. So you could go so far as to say that, that Adam is the source of Eve. You could even say that Christ is the source of Adam, Because through Christ, again in John's Gospel, we know that all things were made. So if Christ made man, Christ is the source of man, right? Kind of makes sense. It's a nice, uh, neat sort of 
conclusion in some sense. At least you might think that initially. Because this interpretation also has some problems. Because Eve uh, was literally created out of Adam. Yeah, we know that. But you can't say the same about Christ. That is, God isn't the source of Christ in the sense that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and God created him all of a sudden. Now, there was a time, uh, a long, long time ago, uh, where people did think that this was the case, that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and that God, the Father, at some point made the Son. Now, this was a heresy and it was dealt with around the 4th century AD. That's a bit of history that you can look up down the track. But the point I'm trying to make is, is pretty simple, that interpreting this as authority or as source, both of these have their issues, whichever way you splice it. And so we need to be careful if we push one over the other. Now, to be clear, I don't mind which side you land on in this one. I think eventually at some point we all have to pick our battles um, and do it as best you can, but have a bit of humility if someone uh, presents a differing opinion. Our third issue uh, we come across, which is loosely related to this idea of head, uh, is the idea of head coverings which is all throughout uh, verses 4 to 6 and verse 15. Uh, We read these words uh, from verse 4. Paul writes, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have a hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now you tell me, what's, what's that all about? What's going on there? And if we give the, the benefit of the doubt, let's just say that, that head coverings are an important thing that we should be looking at in the church, what exactly does Paul mean by a head covering? Are we talking Melbourne Cup-style massive hats or something more discreet? Are we talking like a veil or something else? I've heard people talk about head coverings, for example, as this being about married women, and a head covering is the equivalent of a wedding ring, for example. And so to not have a head covering meant that you were signalling that you weren't married, that you were available all of a sudden, which would certainly be a problem in the church, be a pretty big distraction, I would imagine. Uh, Others have suggested, for example, that a woman letting down her hair, uh, having it uncovered, reflects possibly what the prostitutes were doing in Corinth. So if you remember, Corinth was was home of the goddess Aphrodite. Uh, That was the main goddess up on a giant hill. And her priestesses were effectively prostitutes that allegedly would either shave their heads or have their hair let down. And so if you were to do this, in the church, you were kind of going, I'm one of these prostitutes. I am am signalling that I am basically on that level. But again, these conclusions, they all require us to make a number of brave assumptions, which in reality, we're just not so sure of. And on top of that, if it wasn't enough, uh, you may have noticed there are a whole bunch of weird uh, phrases used as well that effectively, I don't know about you, but they leave me scratching my own head. Like verse 10, Uh, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. 
All right, it was all good and dandy, but now all of a sudden angels are in the mix. You've got these heavenly hosts coming in. What's that supposed to mean? And for men, you don't escape. Uh, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Now, incidentally, I cut my hair this week. Uh, A number of our men here at Night Church actually used to have quite lush, long locks, and they have all since cut their hair. There's a trend going on here. Maybe you guys have been reading ahead. But, I mean, what, what does this mean? What, what is long hair considered to be? If I say to you, how long is a piece of string, how long are you going to make it? And let's, you know, once again, give them the benefit of the doubt. If they had specialised hair rulers at the entrance of the church, you know, and the bouncers are there kind of sizing you up at the door and if it kind of goes beyond, they're going, you know, kick you out of the church. Even if that was a rule, well, read the, the verse again. Paul doesn't appeal to some law here. He's not going back to Torah. He's, he's going to nature. He's saying, does not nature even tell you this? So what authority is he actually appealing to here? There are so many questions raised in a passage like this one. You confused enough yet? Here at KPC, we are a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church. Okay, that goes without say. And what that means is that we can't then just throw out the bits of the Bible that we don't like. We can't just skim over the parts like this that we don't understand. But nor do we believe that the Bible is, is a choose-your-own-adventure. So you can't just make up what you think is the best based on your own experiences necessarily. So you can't ignore some bits and overemphasize others. In fact, by tearing bits out of the Bible, that was also another heresy that was dealt with in the early church. If you overemphasize something like God's love, for example, then you might effectively rip out judgment and, and his wrath, which actually happened at one point. And we want to avoid this mistake here at KPC, which is the reason that we read the whole Bible in church. We're going through Isaiah and morning church. We read both Old and New Testaments. And it's one of the reasons that we go through entire books and don't skip over chapters like this one as well. Because we believe the whole Bible, warts and all, is the authoritative word of God. When I say warts, I'm not saying that the Bible has some icky bits in it. It's all the word of God. It is all amazing and it never fails to achieve its purpose. But from a human perspective, we sometimes look at bits of the Bible and go, whoa, what's that doing there? But if we believe the whole Bible is God's word, not ignoring skipping or skipping bits, then we have to ask ourselves, how do we make heads or tails of a passage like this one? Or perhaps more poignantly, how do we apply a passage like this one to our lives as followers of Jesus today? Well, may I suggest, uh, to have this in your arsenal, if you're ever caught on a tricky bit of the Bible, the first thing to do is pray about it. Spend some time in prayer asking the Holy Spirit to give you clarity about what you're reading. Secondly, I think is to look at what it is that you do know is clear from the text. And this might mean taking a step back, uh, not getting bogged down in the details and looking at the bigger picture. So 1 Corinthians uh, 11, if we zoom out, uh, it's divided into two main issues. So we have the issue of head coverings in the church, in the bits that Zoe read for us. And the second is about the Corinthians' mindset when they came together and shared meals, most likely incorporating the Lord's Supper. That's the latter half of the chapter. 
And the similarity they both share, uh, the issue that they both highlight, is the problem of ungodly disorder and chaos in their Christian gatherings. There's kind of no surprise there. If you've been following along the series in Corinthians so far, if you know back to the beginning of the book, there is a lot of disorder. There's a lot of division going on. People are following certain speakers and highlighting certain people over others. Now, if we take aim uh, this evening, specifically at the first half of the chapter, is what we're going to look at, uh, and we boil it down, what we can see here at its core is Paul addressing issues regarding the roles and functions of men and women in the church. That's what it is at its root. Now, regardless of how you break it down, how you interpret source and head and authority and all these other things, if you step back, uh, taking a, a step back from some of the tricky bits, uh, whether he's talking about husband, wife, men and women, I think one of the key takeaways when everything is boiled down is that men and women are created differently. And that this is God's good design and should be reflected in the functioning of the church. Now, regardless of what the details involve, uh, how you think this should play out, uh, as it will be different across different churches, different denominations, and even within a denomination itself, people have different opinions on some of this stuff. What we can see here in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul clearly cherishes the God-given differences between men and women and thinks they should be upheld and defended with thankfulness. That is, women have their own distinct beauty, both in appearance and temperament, but so do men. And these differences aren't to be shrunk away from or to be blurred. These distinguishing marks should, in fact, be expressed. Now, some have argued in a passage like this one that, that men and women, uh, they dressed very, very similarly. Right? We don't have the modern clothes that we have now that are pretty easy to distinguish between the two. Uh, in the first century, it was often long, flowing garments and things like that from the shoulders down. And so some have suggested that hair was the obvious point of distinction between the two genders. Hence, women weren't to have their hair cut or shaved. And men weren't to have long hair either. Now, take it or leave it, this is just one possibility of why these distinguishing marks should be expressed. Uh, another, which I sort of touched on, is that some of the prostitutes allegedly had their hair cut short and you didn't want to associate yourselves with them in the church. And some have suggested even uh, with the, the god Apollo, uh, this was the god where a lot of homosexual acts were uh, committed in front of, uh, some claim that long hair on men was men playing the effeminate partner in same-sex relationships. Now, again, so much of this is speculation. We don't take my word for any of this stuff. Find your answers from the text itself. With that, it's hard to see what's going on 100% here, except regardless of how you explain it, Paul makes it very clear that there are good and beautiful and God-given differences between men and women, and that we should cherish these and uphold them inside the church. Now, in today's uh, world, uh, highlighting gender differences and why they matter, uh, this can be a really difficult pill to swallow. In the past 10 or so years, things like gender dysphoria have rocketed off the charts, uh, particularly among our younger people. 
uh, where the lines between men and women, masculinity and femininity, have uh, been experimented with, uh, been blurred, uh, boiled down a little bit. And so for myself, for example, the, the problem with any discussion on this topic, even here tonight, is that societally, we're at a point now where it's become a sin not to fully affirm and embrace this cultural phenomenon. We're no longer living in a day and age where uh, you can have your truth and I can have my truth, and as long as we don't cross paths or hurt anyone, then that's okay. Rather, things have shifted dramatically uh, in the common discourse in the last few years where, where you can no longer have your truth. We're bringing up the truth... Uh, it was completely normal 10 years ago, like saying things like men are men and, and women are women, is now strictly forbidden in polite society. And so as we stare down the barrel of a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul makes some pretty clear distinctions between men and between women, both in their roles and, believe it or not, if you look at the text, even in their appearance, when we're discussing such a hot-button issue, uh, like the role of gender in the 21st century it can make us extremely uncomfortable. Now, I'm not here uh, to do this. I'm not here to, to garner any debates about this issue. Um, I know it's an extremely complex one uh, that we're dealing with, and I know some people personally are going through some of this stuff, and it is heavy. I understand that sensitivities are incredibly high in this day and age, and that anything I say generally will require multiple points of clarity before it will be heard with any sympathy by some people. Yet I think it needs to be said out of nothing but love, is embracing this deconstruction of gender at all costs really a good thing? Now, of course, you will be told it is by polite society. You'll be told it is by just about everyone on social media and Especially at the moment, uh, today, for example, marks the last day of World Pride 2023. It's wrapping up this evening as we speak. But is it true? Is blurring the boundaries between genders, is denying someone's God-given sex a really good thing? Now, as we read through all the stuff in 1 Corinthians 11, I think it's extremely clear that that God made us male and female. There's quite a number of hints, if you look at the text carefully, back to Genesis in this passage, back to the origins of humanity where we were made in God's image. And these differences not only matter, but I want to say are an amazing thing. It's a fearful thing. It's something I think that's worth celebrating and even cherishing. I'm going to leave it there uh, for now. I know there's probably a lot in this passage that you might have questions about. Uh, there might even be a number of questions on some of the stuff that I've just said, and that's okay. I think this is a good thing to be wrestling with this stuff. In fact, I think it's a good thing to ask for God to speak to you through his word, uh, particularly on issues like this, and to ask God to help you have a heart that is willing to hear the truth of his good design and willing to be even changed by it. But I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there uh, for now. Uh, some of you might be disappointed that we didn't get to look into uh, the second half of the passage, the stuff on the Lord's Supper. Uh, and that's because I think after everything's been said and done so far, I think there is plenty to digest on at this point in time. 
Uh, we have passages like these with so many little rabbit holes that you can go down. Uh, it can be kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant, uh, which is not something I recommend any of you do. So feel free to talk to one another about some of this stuff. Talk to me afterwards if you like. Uh, but my prayer now is that as we come across these difficult things, that you zoom out and you see something that is so true and so obvious that first and foremost, God would speak to you into your heart through his word, the Bible. As we've seen today, uh, the Bible, it can touch on some pretty deep and significant issues uh, that even though it was written 2,000 years ago, is still relevant for us even in today's world. So with that being said, uh, let me pray uh, as we wrap up. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see the glory of your grand design. Lord, help us as a church to cherish the gift of being made in your image as man and woman and to be a church that upholds the truth as revealed in your word. Father, please be with those and comfort those who might be struggling with issues of gender and sex. Lead them by your spirit into your word. And Father, help us to be a church that loves and comes alongside those who are struggling. Help us to uphold the truth as a beacon of hope. Lord, we thank you that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is everlasting life and complete joy in your name alone. Help us to remember this in Jesus' name. Amen.